I am um, becoming speak- less and less trustworthy of technology. Yeah. yeah, you can't trust you can't trust any technology. We should stop podcasting. We should just write letters to our listeners. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. No, that'd be no. really horrible. <laughs> that'd be the worst thing. Uh, we had to write letters to all like what would it be photocopy one letter and send it out. Uh, yeah, I would. News, I would go to letter. We'd have I would go the, to Kinko's, the director's you know, and... club newsletter. Mm-hmm. So you're you're suggesting? Don't, so here's don't you what remember... we're gonna do. We're gonna take the podcast and we're gonna make it a zine. You took the words right out of my mouth. Don't you remember when we used to play those DIY shows and the Southwest Folk Fest and you go yeah. up to a table and everybody would have all their zines? Right. So we also should change the podcast to being about like how people should be riding bicycles and bicycle rights um, and, and veganism uh, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Of course. Because like, vegans have such a great sense of humor. No, they do. Uh, it's and... true. You know the thing that prevents most people from laughing is iron, and uh, when you're a, when you're an, when you're anemic, it actually allows that that funny bone to really stick out. Most bones yeah. stick out. Ribs uh, stick out a lot. Monkey um, bone. Monkey bone sticks out a lot. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. every vegan's favorite movie. Hello, everybody. This is the Director's Club Podcast. I still haven't seen that. I love turtles. Oh, I should. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Director's Club Podcast, the only film podcast hosted by that one zombie kid. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That famous internet clip. Yeah. If you ever wondered what he's up to now, uh, he loves films, but he hasn't seen Cannibal Holocaust due to his uh, aforementioned love of turtles. Boy, I'm I'm a little under the weather. Are you? Yeah, it's been a little weird lately, like just like uh, the weather fluctuations, I'm... losing losing my roommate's cat and ugh, it's just been weird. Like not things have been depressing, just off. I I reason. would say things have been depressing. That one a little day, bit. that one day in the middle of April when I woke up and there was snow and ice everywhere, I oh, God. I was ready to just go lie in the bathtub and open a vein. Like I was that was it for me. I oh I, I just I just thought to myself, oh, this is winter. It will always be winter. It will never not be winter. Um, this is the rest of my life, and I still kind of feel it like felt that. that way. It definitely felt that way when I was scraping ice off my car. I felt like William H Macy in Fargo. Yeah, just Except you it was were, horrible. William H Macy in Fargo. He was angry about a completely different thing. You were angry about the ice. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, but it, I, but the effect <laughs> is the same. Is Oh man! Uh, did you watch the uh, Fargo? I know you watch a lot of TV. Did you oh, watch yeah. the pilot to Fargo? I did, and I really liked it. Uh, yeah. I thought Martin Freeman kind of overdid it a little bit, too rubbery faced, and kinda... what does that mean? Um, 
he was the only one I felt who was almost doing like uh, an exaggerated interpretation of William H. Macy and Fargo. Like everybody else was a little more subtle and obviously the the show doesn't mirror the actual plot of the film, which is something I was kind of expecting. I wasn't sure what they were going to do. They just took the characters of the movie and the setting, the locale, the sensibility, but sort of built another sort of murder plot uh, that's kind of original, very interesting, and they threw in Billy Bob Thornton. Sure. Sort of as the Peter Stormare part, but definitely a, a lot more vocal. Is is uh, is Billy Bob Thornton... I mean, I guess if you've only seen the first episode, you may not have a good sense of this, but is he going to be in it for a while, or is he like one of those things where he like he's going to be in the first couple episodes and then sort of just instigate things? I think he should be in it in a while, because he's probably the best thing in it so far. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's shades of Simple Plan, too, because of what his character goes through and not to give anything away, but there's certainly moments of tension and confrontation that reminded me of a simple plan in this. So it was just like this weird kind of combination of things I really like. Um, But they really play up the emasculation of uh, Martin's Martin Freeman's character. I felt like it was done a little bit more subtly and, in the movie, if I recall, with William H. Macy. It's not like every five minutes his wife is like, you're not a man! That yeah, comes... no, William H. Macy's wife in Fargo is just kind of a sweet, maybe kind of a dumb lady. I can't... I've, it's been a while since I've seen Fargo, but I don't recall her being kind of like a shrew yeah, um, type. Yeah, and this, they really play that up in, in, in the pilot. Um, with good reason, I guess, to sort of lead up to certain events, but uh, I, I really liked it because it sort of played with my expectations of, you know, well, the moment it was over, I was like, okay, well, what's what other movies could go down this path? Like, is there going to be a big Lebowski TV show now on <laughs> FX? That was called or- Terriers. And <laughs> <laughs> that happened. Wow. Donald Logue played a, a deadbeat... I don't know if he was a beach bum. I didn't. Admittedly, I only saw a couple episodes, but he played kind of a, a, a deadbeat detective um, mm. on the uh, California coast. Um, yeah, because uh, I don't know. Maybe is am I gonna am I gonna be blessed with Paris, Texas, the TV show? I mean, oh man, let's think, <laughs> let's think for a moment what the fuck that would mean. <laughs> would it? Would okay, so a Paris, Texas television show would it be the film stretched out over a season, and then the rest of the show is you keep following the characters, or yeah, I guess. I mean, there's no way I don't, I don't think we get the same cast in any way. I don't think Harry Dean Stant would sign up for it, but just not necessarily like you know trying to copycat the movie, but just doing kind of what the Fargo TV show it just did was okay. We have the blueprints. Let's make it our own. I mean, obviously they got the Cohen brothers' blessing. They were executive producers and everything. Um, and it's just you know like when you expect certain things to happen based on your memory of the movie and they don't happen, 
in the TV show, it's actually a pleasant surprise. I watched uh, uh, I watched Taxi Driver recently. I think that could be a good show. Um, wasn't that just Taxi? Do you ever play uh, role playing games like uh, Dungeons and Dragons stuff like that? Did you ever do any of that? Never. Which is weird because I am a total nerd, right. but I never did any of that stuff. I know a lot of friends who got into Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons, and I don't know. It's weird. Like, there's a part of my brain who sort of that, that just like shut down to that type of thing and video games. Eventually, just like no, not not my scene. Right. I don't know why. I, I mean, I think most nerds what they end up doing is. Uh, it's sort of like they end up somewhere and they are sort of they pick and choose the things they're actually interested in and that becomes their life. But there's a period of time where they dabble in all of it because they're like, mm-hmm. well, all these other nerds, they all like uh, Lord of the Rings. I should read that. And then they read that and they're either super into it or they're not into it at all. But yeah, so you yeah, because you like, you know, you played Quake and Doom and were super into metal and and you know and and you you sort of dabbled in all sorts of nerdy shit but i look at the person you are now and you're not gothy metal guy who plays video games you know you sort of found other outlets for your nerd nerdiness but i'm i am very surprised that you never did any of that um, yeah it's kind of why those episodes of community i don't i didn't get the praise for it i mean maybe there's just a lot of inside jokes surrounding people who played that type of stuff. Oh, you mean the introduction to the Dungeons yeah. and Dragons episode? I never yeah, played no, a I, lot of I still liked them, but I never played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, but that was still one of my favorite episodes just because it was so interestingly structured and really funny. Yeah. Uh, I didn't find it I mean, again, because I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons, I guess I can't really say, but it didn't feel like it was a lot of inside jokes to me. The reason I ask is so my partner, Regina, um, they're really into uh, board games and, and role-playing games and stuff like that. And <laughs> they uh, – so so we got um, this book that has you know the rules for a game in it, and the game is called Fiasco. And it's sort of like mm-hmm. D&D except um, everyone is a dungeon master, which is to say like everyone contributes to everyone else's stories – um, and basically, it systemically creates a Coen Brothers movie, where Whoa. yeah, so huh. you pick your characters, and then you roll dice, and then that determines relationships these characters have. It determines the locales, and the locales, you know, depending on the uh, setting, it could be a noir thing, it can be like a southern fried sort of mystery thing, it can be a small town. Um, so let me tell you, like, about the game that uh, me and Regina played. Of fiasco, it ended up where my my character we we in order to make the story work, we needed three characters, but we were the only ones playing. So there was one character that we both played. Um, so that was sort of our joint character. So the three characters were my character, who was a parole officer, um, a gay parole officer who was in love with a high school chemistry teacher. There was the high school <laughs> chemistry teacher um, who is closeted. And buys weed off of a deadbeat. And then there is Regina's character who was this deadbeat um, who who is uh, seeing the parole officer for uh, for a DUI. Um, so it ended up being this thing where 
everyone has their relationships with each other. Everyone has their certain needs. Um, and then you, uh, you pick, you know, the locations such as the school and then you pick, uh, what they're all trying to get. And then basically you act out, you know, it's almost more of an improv game than like a D and D thing. Yeah. I was going to say that mm-hmm. you, you act out all of these scenes and, According to, you know, dice rolls or whatever, that determines how well these scenes go. And eventually, it just ends in a clusterfuck. And it ended up being almost like election. <laughs> the story Whoa. we told. Where, like, my character was trying to save some, was trying to save the teacher. And he ended up dying of a, of a poisonous snake bite. And he was disgraced as a peeping Tom. Um, and someone was, someone did a hit and run in a mall. And... Like there's wow. all this there's all this crazy stuff going on and it just sort of ended up just because of the way the game is set up it ends up sort of making one of those plots where everyone is trying to get what they want and they all fuck up and <laughs> and it just all goes haywire hence the name fiasco so next time you're over we should play fiasco I mean, I'm still going to be tweeting. I'm still going to be writing on Letterboxd. I'm still going to be podcasting, but I just want to free up my dependence on, you know, the the iPhone and technology in general. And I kind of, you know, feel that it's it's for the best. It'll it'll allow me, especially now since I actually typed up six pages of a screenplay that I've been wanting to write for a while. Once I decided, you know what, no need to, you know, play words with friends or dabble around on Flipboard or Whoopity Doo or whatever the fuck apps I'm downloading. Do you, you have know? an app called Whoopity Doo? <laughs> no. What's Whoopity Doo like? Uh, Is it like just a, a button you hit and then you just hear a crowd going Whoopity Doo? <laughs> I would. It's I a would, crowd of farts. Yeah, you know, it's like a whoopee cushion. Okay, good. It's one of those apps that's just a fart button. Good. Yeah. Hey. But yeah, I mean, I'm gonna you know have a, like a little blog of where I write things still because I, I I don't know even just lately after I've been watching movies, uh, just write a paragraph. That's it. Yeah, that's... you know, doesn't have to be like a full length epic review. You know, so and that I I'm more than happy to do that, and I I see I I see you doing that, and I'm I'm inspired oh, to keep good. keep at it. Well, I mean, more power to you. I really hope you succeed. In my experience, I've never been able to shake. There's so much bullshit that is just a time suck. Um, yeah. And someone who, as someone who is afraid of their own mortality as I am, I really should be doing less of it. But uh, I've never been able to shake time sucks unless um, like, I'm forced to financially. So, for example, my iPod was stolen um, from work the other day. Ugh. So what I used to do on all my commutes was just I would listen to podcasts and I would listen to old episodes of podcasts I liked and I would just re-listen to the same podcasts and stuff like that. It was just sort of a, a holding pattern or whatever. But now I read and I'm I've you know I've read two books <laughs> since my Woo-hoo! iPod got stolen and I'm almost done with the third book and so like that is literally but that's what it took. It took me. <laughs> needing my iPod stolen, and then not having the money to replace it. Um, right. <laughs> well, I, I I definitely need to conserve, and I need to, you know, work on my finances, too. It's it's basically like, okay, my birthday's coming up. Yeah, the mortality thing hits me a little bit. So I'm like, 
I want to be more creative. I want to take more walks. I want to do all these things rather than just, you know, focus on the things that are time sucking. And I realize that everybody does into some way or another, and it's fine. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not judgmental. I'm not like, oh my god, all this technology. Like I'm against it. Obviously, I wouldn't be podcasting if I was against it. But I'm just. I know for myself, yeah, I would probably. If I didn't have my iPhone, I would read more, and I want to. Um, And I want to work on more creative things like I used to as well. And um, I also have the impetus to write little reviews. And it's funny that you mentioned that fear. It actually struck me a little bit back-to-back when I watched a Bergman movie and Lake Mungo. Pretty much back-to-back. Oh, (laughs) so you did watch Lake Mungo. I just, yeah... Uh, last night, back to back, you know, before I went to bed, what was the Bergman boy, oh movie? boy, did I have, boy, did I have heavy thoughts after seeing Winter Light by Bergman. What it, it's tell me about Winter Light. It's basically the Sunset Limited, only with Max von Sydow and a priest. <laughs> oh man, um, that sounds great. Oh my God, was it bleak. Um, and beautiful. I mean, it's. It's definitely slow, slowly paced, and you know it takes its time at the church for a good like ten, fifteen minutes. It seems like where it's just about the ritual of church, um, and then Max von Sydow. Actually, his wife is saying, you know, my husband, he's really, really upset about something, and he's not communicating it to me. I'm hoping he can talk to you and sort of confide in you, um, and so eventually it just becomes kind of a, a a long conversation between Max, Max von Sydow and this priest. Um, so it's, it's a lot of stationary cameras and just gorgeous cinematography throughout, but it's, it's really all about the dialogue and how it's a confrontation about mortality and a guy who's basically um, convinced that the world's going to end. Uh, and, and even the priest can't come up with the right thing to comfort him, which totally reminded me of Sunset Limited. Sure. And uh, I I don't watch a lot of Bergman, but you know I do have like the Hulu Plus, and I just randomly chose it. Um, and it was just weird to watch after something completely different in terms of execution with Lake Mungo, which I thought was pretty amazing. Can we can we talk about Lake Mungo? Mm-hmm. I Go loved it. it. I. I sort of uh, – I watched a shitty – every once in a while I want to watch a really shitty direct-to-video modern horror movie. Um, yeah. If only because it's, it's, it's often helpful to see truly bad movies. So when you see movies that you just aren't, in, aren't impressive and are mediocre, you don't – you know, you, you have some perspective. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's it's nice to just be like, oh no, that's right. Like, there's so many fucking movies out there. There are movies, like, it's not just movies where people are trying something and they fail. There are movies you can watch. Like, I think the movie I watched was called Rites of Spring, um, and that's on Netflix Instant. And it was just, I didn't understand why anyone made it. Like, movies are so hard to make. So much effort has to be put forth oh, yeah. by so many people, and there's nothing interesting about that movie at all. Um, like I couldn't, and it was a thing where it was the writer director did it. And I think he might've been a producer as well. Like clearly this man spent hours and hours and hundreds of hours of his life to make this film. And 
it's just garbage and it's totally without personality and character and it's it's always interesting to see that and just to realize oh no that that happens all the time um, well, it could be just the filmmaker thinks that they're making a great movie. No, sh- um, I mean, yeah, and I, the reason I bring up the reason I bring up how hard it is to make movies is because I want to emphasize that I have a lot of respect for this filmmaker to to make a movie. Full stop. Like that's all you need to do to earn yeah. respect. Um, mm-hmm. You know, unless you are actually established in Hollywood and you're just sleepwalking through project after project, and you don't give a shit, and it's just a way to make money for you. Like any person who makes an independent film <laughs> is someone who has done something that is extremely difficult. Whether or not, you know, whether it turns out to be something amazing like Cheap Thrills or whether it ends up being horrible like Rites of Spring. But uh, after seeing Rites of Spring, I wanted to see a. Um, a modern uh, horror film that I had heard good things about. And I had heard good things about both Lake Eden and Lake Mungo, and I did not recall the difference between the two. I think Eden Lake is... Oh, Eden Lake. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what I would compare it to, because it's more of just, you know, a couple on vacation winds up getting stalked. Right, it's more like The Strangers or Funny Games or something like that. Pretty Um, much. Yeah, so, but I... I honestly I couldn't recall, so I just picked Lake Mungo. And um, as someone who's a fan of the, there's I can't say I'm a found fan of found footage movies because I think most are the worst thing ever. <laughs> like I think most are just <laughs> horrible, and 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 are horribly justified. And the reality is instantly broken, which is the one reason. Like that's the one interesting thing about your movie already. Like you've already decided that your movie isn't going to have terrific camera work. You've already decided that the movie isn't going to be really well shot and edited and stuff because it has those limitations of uh, characters are just holding cameras as things happen. Mm-hmm. So like the one thing you have is this verisimilitude that you're going for. And when movies don't like even really make a good attempt – to, to get that verisimilitude and to sell it as real, it is the biggest fucking bummer to me. Because I'm like, what? now, now it, what's the point? Why am I watching this at all? Like, if I'm right. going to watch a, a shitty movie about a haunted house, I'd rather watch a shitty movie about a haunted house that had, you know, a cameraman and lighting <laughs> and stuff <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah, I just, I, I think that was my feeling with the paranormal activity movies. I just... I the third paranormal activity movie I'm a big fan of. Uh, I think well, that is very. I have to watch it, I guess. But it's mm. and well, it's a prequel, so you don't need to watch the second one. Okay. Um, if you haven't seen that, but the third one has a lot of good gags. And the thing about uh, found footage is because you already have this limitation put on you, you have to be creative to how you do your scares. You know, you can't just do a lot of crazy editing and. Camera mm-hmm. effects and stuff, you have to frame things correctly. And I think Paranormal Activity 3 does a lot of that really well. Um, Wasn't and the, it uh, the Catfish Guys? Yeah. Did that one? Yes. Okay. It, it's by the Catfish Guys. Speaking of a <laughs> probably found footage movie, I don't know if anyone ever <laughs> got to the bottom of whether or not that movie was an actual documentary. But I like Catfish quite a bit. Yeah, I... I've been meaning to see a movie that a lot of people talk about and is considered kind of controversial is uh, Man Bites Dog. Oh, you haven't or, seen that? No. The That is a... 
I you know I haven't seen that uh, since I was uh, it, right out of high school, so it's one of those movies I have to sort of uh, you know temper my enthusiasm towards. But I think that was a really good movie. Okay. Um, it's again, it's not trying to be a horror movie, which helps a lot because mm-hmm. the, where a lot of found footage movies fall apart is they're like, well, shit, we need a certain amount of scares. At you know, at this point, it, we're twenty minutes in and we don't have a scare. Whereas Man Bites Dog is more of a mind of a serial killer kind of movie, and um, just by the uh, aesthetic of it, of being a, a, a documentary crew following around this serial killer, then it becomes more of a critici- uh, criticism of uh, like the media and their obsession with violence and stuff like that. Nice. Um, no, I, I, I just I kind of get tired of like the gimmick. Of found footage, sure. it's like I, I imagine, you know, even where something like Cloverfield, they're like, oh, it's like Godzilla only Blair meets Blair Witch, you know. I mean, just let's do the found footage thing, but have it a, a monster movie instead. And I didn't think it worked as effectively in that one, especially once you get the reveal of the monster. Yeah, I didn't see um, Cloverfield though. Again, there's something there's something about found footage, the aesthetic. I mean. Well, let's actually take it back a bit, and I promise we will talk about Lake Mungo, even though Lake Mungo, I think, is more of a mockumentary than a found footage. Yeah, I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but That's what I thought. But I like finding footage, <laughs> which I think is actually a thing that happens. As someone, I've spent countless hours on YouTube, and I don't use YouTube primarily to look up things that... You know, like, to violate copyright law. I'm not using YouTube <laughs> primarily because, like, oh, that's where I can see clips of films I like and, and music. Well, I, I listen to a lot of music on YouTube and stuff. But I also love seeing videos that people have uploaded to YouTube. Um, sure. And back, back in the day, I used to upload a lot of videos to YouTube that were... Didn't we all? Sure. Including a lot of performances from... DIY bands. Well, no, exactly. So one of my favorite things ever is to find um, videos that people have recorded of bands um, like playing at someone's house show or something <laughs> like that. Or yeah. just playing for the camera for no real reason. But um, it's not a web show. It's not on television. It's it, They just recorded themselves playing and put it up. And a lot of times, a lot of personality comes through. There's this... Um, if you search Smashing Pumpkins 1979 Bedroom Dropouts, there's a band from the Philippines, and I'm going to... Ass- yeah, I've seen that. That was awesome. Uh, there's a band from the Philippines called the Bedroom Dropouts, and I'm assuming they never were on a label. They were never anything, because this video is just one of their friends had a camcorder and filmed them doing a cover of 1979 at this party in the Philippines. But what's great about this video is that the person with the camcorder sort of gets bored and he just starts shooting the party. And you see all of these people and all of, and you know, a lot of them, when they see the camera, they'll make a face and they'll wave or whatever. But a lot of it is just, you end up seeing sort of what you see when you're at a party, which is like, some people are just sitting there smoking and they're bored and they're not really talking to anyone. And two, and some people, they come to a party to only talk to their friends that they would already talk to <laughs> if they weren't in a crowded room full of people. And it's this crazy capture of the essence of like what a house party is 
um, with this great song, which is about sort of the uh, the ennui of being a teenager in the background, and it has that, and it also has a great element to it where it's like there's the humanizing aspect of oh, it's like uh, like when you when you when you live in the first world and you're white and you know you've never been all over the country all over the world you tend to just sort of like oh philippines that's you know asian markets and <laughs> and crowded streets with people on bicycles everywhere but no there's probably just people who like the smashing pumpkins in the philippines there are people oh, sure who, there are people who download this podcast who live in the philippines hello people Hi. from the philippines <laughs> like and, and it's nice to just be like oh yeah no that experience is probably the same everywhere I got a little sad, though, because I know we had listeners in Malaysia when I was looking at our stats, and then after hearing the plane, I was like, aw, I hope none of our oh. listeners were on the plane. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> it's always fun when uh, Libsyn, our uh, podcast host, allows us to break things down by crazy amounts of demographics, and it's always fun to see, like, oh, <laughs> we've gotten 70 downloads from Brazil. That's just, <laughs> it's just so weirdly specific. Yeah, um, it is. But anyway, you know, so also, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry. I I, I was going to say like I like finding footage. There is a thing where um, people recording themselves ends up saying a lot about them, but not what they're trying to say. Hmm. Um, like that's why I think the chief strength of Blair Witch Project is is at a certain point the way the camera is held. And how it yeah. stops focusing on people. Towards the end, she's mostly just holding the camera and you only see their feet. Like, that is so expressive and it says so much about the character um, with the camera without it just being like, oh, it's a person's point of view and they're always holding the camera to their eyes at all times. Like, the actual camera work in Blair Witch Project is really expressive and interesting. Oh, yeah, including the shot where she's really freaking out and, of course, people want to make fun of it, it, we're looking up her nose or whatever but there's a specific reason for that angle and why she's you know she she's experiencing this intense paranoia and to focus on her face like that i actually thought was really effective and there's a lot of moments like that in blair witch that i think are quite cinematic you know yeah and so i mean and so even a movie like that isn't found footage but sort of plays with that aesthetic like mm-hmm. computer chess because there are yeah. parts of there are parts of computer chess that are someone's holding a camcorder and somewhat to document this thing that's happening and someone's addressing the camcorder and then there are parts of it that are not that at all but it's all shot on the same kind of camera mm-hmm. like that to me the one of the things I find fascinating about computer chess and the reason I love that movie so much is it just captures the way those people are like it just feels like an anthropological study of nerds and yeah. it captures that so well and where it where even though it isn't actually a found footage movie it gets it feels like it and it gets a lot of the benefits without the downside of having to always justify the camera being on right um, i didn't get the same sense that it was like uh how i get because i got a little worn out of mumblecore movies and Computer Chess was a different spin on that in terms of how organic it felt. And like you said, it was capturing, you know, a certain almost psychology of what these people are like. Yeah. Um, and whether or not that clicks with somebody or not, because I know people who can't stand it. 
Oh, and I totally... Uh, Computer Chess is one of those movies where people just hate it, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. no, I get that. It's a fucking... Mm-hmm. It's a weird movie. It's not... I think it's hilarious, but it doesn't have a lot of jokes. It's not like a funny, funny kind of movie. Uh, funny right. haha uh, to go back to <laughs> one more um, It's it's yeah. It's got a lot of asshole characters. It's I totally understand why someone wouldn't like it. But so so like I mean so for example, you asked me because the crazies, uh, which is a Canadian found footage movie that came that is from Canada. The dirties. The mean? dirties. No, you're right. The, the Crazies is the George Romero one. Yeah. Um, the Dirties is, is a found footage movie from Canada about two people, um, and then slowly it just turns into one person planning a school shooting. Um, and that is a movie that it's all of its strengths are that the characters are strong and that it's a very specific kind of person. Right. Um, and it captures that. But because that movie makes so little effort to justify the reality, I could not, like, get past it. Hmm. Um, it was weird, because the Dirties has these people with the cameras always on them, but the two main characters are not the ones holding the cameras. There are other characters who are not named, or I think at one point one of them is named, but because certain scenes have coverage where it will cut between <laughs> two people, then you have to assume at least two people are filming them at all times. And yeah, that's a good point. They're not given yeah. characters at all, um, and they don't even try to give them characters. And it just it's like, why so... is the cameraman documenting like them having an argument in the bedroom? Right, why is the cameraman documenting them having an argument about how this person has no friends when clearly he has two friends that he never acknowledges <laughs> but are so in love with him that they will follow him around with a camera at all times. Like, like it, it, I was it, surprisingly it, invested in it just based on something I can identify with, especially at the very beginning. Like, how it started out, I was almost kind of ecstatic because it just reminded me of exactly what I was doing. In high school sure. with my friend. Um, and we experienced, you know, little, little bullying here and there. And I, at one point, you know, I actively said to my friend, hey, we're filming this scene in the hallway and we're in a class with a couple bullies. And this, you know, I have this idea. Let's actually have them be in the movie. <laughs> and we did that for a little bit of an action scene that was actually, you know, kind of fun to do. So, but unfortunately... I do think it devolves as it goes along where it becomes just about the one guy and his obsessive uh, tendencies and kind of just like deciding this is how the movie should go. And then it becomes really dark and I understand his intention, I guess. But like you said, I do agree the whole bully thing, school show, school shooting is very played out at this point. Yeah, it's it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't throw a ton new onto that. Um, yeah. Other than the found footage aesthetic, which is so unjustified that I would have loved to see this movie if it wasn't found. Fo- like, if it could have just been, like, you can make a movie about people making a movie without it being found footage, you know? Have you seen and Chronicle yet? I haven't seen Chronicle. You should, because I'm curious about that one, too. From you. I want to. I got to see Chronicle and Cloverfield, because those were probably the, other than horror films, those were the two most successful found yeah, probably. footage. And honestly, I'm interested in 
the expansion of found footage in mockumentary. Because for a while, all mockumentaries were were Christopher Guest movies, which are mm-hmm. great, but that's a very specific thing. And they're and documentary is such a crazy form, you know. Like documentary has so many wild, varied things, you right. know. Uh, 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 Bowling for Columbine is a documentary, but so is Leviathan, and so is Skin and Grove. You know, <laughs> those, yeah. those three yeah, movies true. are are incredibly different. And so I'm really interested in mockumentaries. That's what I love Lake Mungo because Lake Mungo sort of is uh, it's almost a uh, like a television, uh, I you know, investigative discovery kind of a show. Yeah. Where it's, it's like a frontline special or something. Ex- like, exactly. It, yeah. Or like a 2020 or mm-hmm. Dateline or, you know, shows like that. Um, and at every point, it was like, oh, I understand why this is a documentary. This is a fascinating story with interesting characters. And so it actually, like even some Christopher Guest movies like um, Waiting for Guffman... At a certain point, you're like, wait a second, what is, why is the director making this? Like, <laughs> like this isn't actually that fat, like, unless the director knew ahead of time that all of these crazy things would be happening, <laughs> like, it, it's almost a little hard to justify why someone would invest the time to make a documentary about those people in the first place. Right. Whereas, like, Lake Mungo, it's justified where, oh, Here's the story, and it was a story that started out as one thing and became something different. Um, and the characters are really good, and it actually, unlike most uh, horror films, it says something really interesting about sort of grief and the way people deal with grief. Yeah, um, I was not expecting to be as emotionally invested and moved by what was taking place because I'm walking in, like you said, mockumentary, found footage, horror movie, even the cover art's like after dark or whatever it is right right and so i'm expecting a creepy found footage ghost movie and then next thing you know i'm like this is kind of yeah like a a meditation on grief and mortality and i'm kind of like wow this this goes to to a really deep personal place that is not something i you know kind of expect from this type of movie but i think it's also an interesting commentary on you know like how a documentary presents certain events. And it would have been something that I, I wish we had seen for like the Errol Morris episode or when I reviewed oh, yeah. Imposter or something. You know? Imposter is what I thought about. Imposter feels like this documentary that, it you know, it's a, not a real story, but right. the, the documentary as it exists in that world in Lake Mungo feels like the imposter. Mm-hmm. Um, where these, you know, these family members are saying these things and they're recounting their story, but I don't know if they understand how they come across <laughs> as they're saying it. Um, yeah. And, and Lake Mungo, I mean, it, it sort of goes into a little bit of, uh, it doesn't, it's not uh, entirely justified at the end with the camera phone footage. Mm-hmm. But, like, the fact that it does things as for more poignancy and character than just scares yeah. is really, really refreshing. And then even at the end of the film, and I can't reveal what happens, but basically there's a moment where it's clearly, it's the thing that you actually see in a lot of documentaries, which is 
the director juxtaposes someone saying something at one point with someone else saying something, you know, in, that conflicts with it. Interests is interestingly at a different point, um, and he sort of creates a narrative out of two separate people's uh, recollections. Yeah, um, and that's something that you see in documentaries all the time. But most mockumentaries are so they, like they already have so much trouble justifying everything that happens in them. Like if you look at something like best in best in show or uh, a mighty wind or something, if you saw those in the theater as actual documentaries, you'd be like, oh, that was cute. There are a lot of interesting people in it, but that director didn't necessarily have a lot to say. <laughs> like, I think it that's was really. I mean, you could have told this as a traditional fictional narrative, but it, to attempt to tell this kind of story through the conceit of a documentary film is kind of unique, and I just was genuinely impressed in terms of execution and you know what the story kind of means and a little bit of ambiguity too. sure uh, what's taking place and just a, a lot of different feelings from a movie you walk in expecting one thing and it becomes something completely different uh and it's very layered and i think it's actually something i'm, uh, I'm gonna make sure i recommend to jay Cheel if he hasn't seen it yet because Someone who really, and he, obviously he makes documentary movies, but someone who's interested in this, um, you know, the kind of conversation that can come from watching something like this, I'm sure he would get a lot out of if he hasn't seen it yet. But yeah, no, I'm, man, I'm glad this is one of those discoveries of the year for me. Initially, like almost know, 12 years ago, I did this kind of like parody of Behind the Music only with me and my friend uh, Matt Denny, we used to make a ton of movies in high school, and that's actually how we got sociable. We would go to parties, show our movies, people would laugh and get drunk, and you know, we we were both socially awkward. But once we started making movies together for fun and making people laugh, that's how we actually made other friends. Sure. Um, that, by the way, the movies, I will say that about the dirties, the movie that they're making at the beginning of the dirties oh, yeah. definitely felt like a Jim and Denny thing where it's very, exactly it. it's really silly and it's, it's funny, but it's not really like, com- it's not really like comedy writing. Funny. No. <laughs> it's just, it's just fucking weird. And it's clear that you're just sort of coming up with silly things as you go. Yeah, pretty much. It's not like we sat down and, you know, mapped out our plot and stuff. We just, whatever was funny in the moment is what we went with. Um, but yeah, I, so I did that parody like 10 years ago or something and, you know, interviewed my dad and did a lot, a lot of stuff with friends and just had everybody make fun of me and almost like create an opposite version of me, which was just kind of fun to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, Watching it now, because, you know, uh, Denny actually found a VHS copy of it, because I don't know where mine went for many years. He found a copy of it, mailed it to me, and I looked at him like, oh, there's some stuff in here. If, like, there's some great stuff in here, and then there's some stuff I'm like, I can't believe I left that in. That's not funny. It's like weird, like 10 years later, looking and looking at something and going, oh, I can't believe I included that. But... Life- I wanted to update it and just make it more about me and comment on, you know, social media a little bit and then just interview some of my newer friends to take part as well. Sure. Because I think that's actually – you sent me a bunch of movies recently and one of the movies you sent me was Afflicted. Um, 
Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard good things about it. That so. well, that is a found footage movie made by two guys who made movies growing up as kids, and those movies they made as kids are integrated into the uh, actual film itself, which ends up giving it a level um, of reality and and uh, sort of believability that you wouldn't normally get just. You know, it's that sort of thing whenever you see a movie character look at a picture of themselves from when they were younger and you can tell that that was just, oh, that's actually just what Jack Nicholson looked like in high school. That was just a high school <laughs> photo that Jack Nicholson had that he brought. Um, and they include, like, footage from the movies they made when they were younger and it sort of um, cements their fictional characters as real because you actually see, like, oh, yeah, no, those are the same people as little kids. Right. Um, so that's actually that's uh that's interesting. I'm yeah. I'm, it's kind of fun because, and that's another huge reason why, you know, the idea of shutting down, you know, an iPhone and an iPad as distractions, it would allow me to really try and get more creative again. Because I used to love writing movie reviews and screenplays, even for fun, you know. So I mean, it. it I just want to do that as my hobby, as opposed to like just zone out. And that's kind of a reason why I'm feeling really good, even just even just typing up five pages of a screenplay was just so like I I had such a different kind of uh, you know enthusiastic feeling that I haven't felt in a while because I haven't done that kind of thing in a while. So. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I've been feeling the, uh, the same way and it's hard because as someone who I actually do really like video games and I, you know, I'm interested in them as an art form and what they can do. It can be hard for me to distinguish between I'm playing this video game because I'm getting something out of it creatively and I'm appreciating, you know, the, the, the art that goes into it, or I'm just doing this because it's a holding pattern and I want to turn my brain off because it's less painful than thinking, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, I'm just, there, was, there was a huge reason why there was a period in my life where all I was doing was watching movies. And, you know, n- now doing a podcast for it, it feels a lot better than when it almost felt like an escape from depression. Yeah. Like, I had definitely have moments where I'm like, yeah, I'm depressed, so I might as well just put on a John Candy movie and laugh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or a Bergman movie. Who knows? But a movie I saw recently that I'm waiting to give a final assessment on is uh, this movie called Enemy. Okay. Jake Gyllenhaal. And it's directed by the guy who did Incendies and Prisoner. He's also got a lot of short films that I want to check out. Um, And I didn't realize he directed a movie about a school shooting in Canada. I actually saw this years ago. It was called Polytechnique. And the reason why I saw it was because Jay Shield put it in his top ten list that year. Um, and I thought it was really, it really, really haunting and, and kind of uh, terrifying. More subtle and along the lines of something like Elephant, only kind of even more um, subtle and shot in black and white. So I am kind of a fan of this director. Uh, I liked Prisoners, just thought, you know, in terms of plot, it was, I kind of knew what to expect. It was a very much like a Fincher-esque serial killer plot. Um, but I liked the performances. I love the cinematography. There's just, I, I think this, this director has got a lot of confidence behind his vision, and I'm all for it. I heard 
a lot of interesting things about Enemy from people who hate it, from people who love it, from people who just don't get it. Um, it is it, totally up my alley. It is like David Lynch meets David Cronenberg with like kind of a weird Kafka sort of uh, <laughs> like I, I was gonna I was gonna say I thought Kafka was David Lynch meets David Cronenberg. Pretty much. Yeah, but just in terms of a specific um, metaphor slash symbol that keeps popping up through the movie, which a lot of people, I mean, you know, they've given it away in reviews and and stuff. Um, you know, it's it's just there's a lot of spider imagery for reasons that were not necessarily clear to me while watching it because they're mainly portrayed in these surreal dream sequences. Um, but it's really just another sort of doppelganger movie, and we're getting so much of this lately with uh, even the Muppets movie <laughs> um, and the new Jesse Eisenberg movie coming out called The Double. And there's a whole show that apparently everybody's raving about called Orphan Black. Uh, so there's just this weird... We're kind of like in this doppelganger... Uh, resurgence lately. I, th- I think it. I think it was probably the uh, the smash success of the hit film The Roommate. Enemy is a total mindfuck in the best way. But I mean, the reason why I, it's one of those movies. The moment's over, I'm like, okay, I know I liked it, but I don't know specifically why, and I need to watch it again. And hopefully, it's going to come out on Blu-ray within the summer. I haven't actually seen a release date for it yet. Um, the version I saw, the quality wasn't the best. Uh, there were moments where it was like crystal clear. And then there were moments, especially when it gets really dark, that it's super pixelated. So I'm sort of, I'm recommending the movie to everybody out there because it's one of those, when it's over, you want to talk about it with people because it's, 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 it's totally a love it or hate experience, but intellectually, I think there are some interesting things going on that, you know, I honestly, I think if there was ever a great double feature idea for a bonus episode that we need, you know, someone like Kurt Halfyard on for, it would be Enemy and probably Under the the Skin, even though I haven't seen it yet. Um, just like two I'm seeing really that, I'm seeing cerebral. that tonight. You are? Yeah. Oh, lucky mm-hmm. fuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm having poutine. Speaking of Canada, what? Yeah, yeah. Wow. We got a me and Regina. We got a group on for an all poutine restaurant. Oh my god, that exists in Chicago. Don't you feel like a dumb uh, fuck for going to Grand Rapids? I'm starting to. <laughs> well, I mean, just like in, I mean, th- there's just some movies I don't get to see. Sure. And I mean, at let's, least it's, let's it's be honest. Up the first week there's of May. Some, so. Let's be honest. There are a lot of movies I could see and I don't see. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, well, Under the Skin is definitely something you want to see on the big screen, and you want to see it really soon because everybody's raving about it. Um, and I'm actually a huge fan of the director's other two movies. Birth and... Uh, Sexy Beast. What was the other one? Sexy Beast. I, I, well, have, to, I have to apologize for not liking Quick Change, though. Aww. Well, I mean, again, it's maybe just... It's one of those things, if you don't find it funny, you don't find it funny. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny. I think it's, I think it's very pleasant. That's, that's the best I can say about it. <laughs> I think it's one of those things, too, where it's, 
even when just like you know oh Phil Hartman yay oh Stanley Tucci yay Tony oh sure you know it's when like when that happens I'm just automatically smiling um even if it's not like consistently laugh out loud funny I I I don't know maybe it's just you know my my love of everybody involved and I will agree that like the it's totally kind of off um you know the, the the bank heist is one type of movie then escaping to the airport is another type of movie and they sort of clash and that's probably because there were two directors um but i don't know i i maybe it's one of those things too where you know seeing it young and i loved it and that feeling sort of stays with me watching it later in life i i, I think it's funny I, I really like it and i I will say it's lofty, kind of over-exaggerated praise to say it's like, oh, it's like Inside Man meets After Hours. It's not. It's, <laughs> yeah, just plot, plot-wise, plot it's like Inside Man meets After Hours. Sure. Because first, very, first in, it sort of goes over the plot of Inside Man in ten minutes, and then the yeah. rest of it is about people trying and failing to escape from New York. Um, mm-hmm. So it's actually more like uh, Inside Man meets Escape from New York <laughs> after hours. Meets, Only with Randy Quaid. Meets Home Alone goofy. 2, Lost in New York. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I went there. I, I, I want to say this about Quick Change. I think there is something inside of me that is not giving it enough credit because I have a weird knee-jerk reaction to the aesthetics of your average studio comedy from the late 80s, early 90s. Ooh, how do you feel about Midnight Run? I haven't seen it. Oh my god. Yeah, no, I know. I know. I'm scared I'm, now. Yeah, yeah. I should see it. But there's something about like when that music starts and it's just that weird <laughs> peppy like generic like it it just feels like they just hit the demo button on a Casio keyboard. Where it's just <laughs> the most generic peppy. Yeah. And it's the exact same cue every time. It yeah. is. It, it just makes me angry. I felt, and there's yeah, there's just something about the way these kinds of movies were just shot, I guess, or how they look. I mean, it felt sort of similar, but it's. I think this movie's way better than Nothing But Trouble. But Ooh. but I mean, the aesthetic, aesthetic wise, they both came out around the same time, and were you know both big uh, star driven, you know. Hollywood comedies. It's uh, just, yeah. There's something about that aesthetic, and when that music kicks in, it really bums me out. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I think it might just be my age. Like, I think it just might be I come from a, a, a time where comedies mostly did not have scores. Um, they had soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and the comedies that did have scores, like, like the one I can think of is like Billy Madison. That score is great. That's <laughs> that 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 is one of the most wasted scores ever because that movie totally doesn't need like a really catchy late motif and stuff like that. But the score, if you go back and listen to Billy Madison or you watch it even, um, the score is phenomenal. Um, and it's a full orchestra. It's not. It almost like gra- how does like the gra- score in Billy Madison go. Um. It's, I don't know, it's just like, bum, 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 bum. It's kind of, you know, peppy, like a comedy score, but it's a full full orchestra, and there's sort of just a repeating theme, like Billy's theme and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I felt the same way 
and obviously Groundhog's Day is one of the greatest movies ever, but Groundhog's Day, when they first cut away from the TV studio and it's playing that wacky, <laughs> like, fucking music as they're driving to uh, <laughs> Puxitani, like, that, <laughs> that, that music is just horrible, and it just it makes is. everything feel really cheap. And I don't know, maybe I'm just willing to forgive that stuff. I think, know, I know, and I think I'm too hard on that stuff, to be honest. I think there's just something about that that makes, that irks me. Um, I tend to either like comedies that have a lot of one-liners or comedies that are really uh, director-driven, and hmm. I think maybe. I don't know what it God, is. But... God, do you hate planes, trains, and automobiles? By I am not a fan. I don't think wow. it's a funny movie. I think it's interesting that it is a movie like that that has so much heart and cares so much about his characters but I don't think it's funny Um, I mean I I think most comedies back then were very broad and I don't like broad comedy generally I don't think John Candy is funny in in his Hollywood movies because he tends to just play big characters whereas Mm -hmm. like on SCTV that was sort of a weirder sensibility he'd play weirder characters he's great um, but I don't like, you know, John Candy's, uh, sort of thing he, in his Hollywood movies. Granted, I haven't seen a ton, but I guess that's just me saying I don't like Uncle Buck and I don't like, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Um. Yeah. I can understand that reaction, though. I mean, it's weird. Uh, I, for some reason, when I was, uh, cleaning the kitchen and I just put on Walk Hard in the background... I realize I think my laugh ratio with Walk Hard is actually way more than Wet Hot American Summer. Like, I was laughing almost at everything in Walk Hard. Walk Hard's a weird movie, too. It is. Cause, cause, it's totally cause, weird. Because Walk Hard is so crazy. That is a broad movie. In that it is, yeah. At any moment, you expect it to end because it just feels like a funnier die sketch. <laughs> and the fact that it's it has that sensibility of a funnier die sketch, but it goes on for the entire film, it's crazy. Yeah, but every, um, like Tim Meadows is like, you don't want this shit. Oh you know? God, it turns all your good feelings into all your bad feelings <laughs> into good feelings. It's a nightmare. Um, I I think maybe once a week I go on YouTube and I look up the clip of the Beatles. Yeah, um, oh, I think God. everything about that scene in Walk Hard with the Beatles. Right down, I think my f- absolute favorite thing about it um, is either Jerry Bednob as the Maharishi going, please, Beatles, stop fighting here in India. <laughs> <laughs> which is just, which is, Ugh. which is just a perfect encapsulation of biopics and the way that they always have, like scenes just start off with expository dialogue because they always want you to know what part of the famous person's life they're in. Right. Um, or Jack Black, who <laughs> generally, he's not my favorite comedic actor. I think he's really good in a lot of stuff like Bernie and high fidelity, but like, um, often I find him just too big and kind of right. irritating, but his choice to make Paul McCartney Scottish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Jack Black feels like he's in a different movie. Where he is the typical Jack Black character in a comedy. Like, he's Jack Black's character in Saving Silverman or something like that. Mm-hmm. That but got old. The, but the scene he's in, in in Walk Hard is the scene where he has to pretend that he's Paul McCartney. 
So the whole time he has this look on his face like he's going to get caught. <laughs> like that he's not Paul McCartney. Yeah. And it's like, well, we used to play in Hamburg. Remember that, Paul? And then Paul goes, and then, and then, and then Jack like goes, remember it? Of course I do. I booked him. I'm Paul McCartney. I'm the leader of the Beatles. And then he just sort of has a look on his face like, yep, I sure am. <laughs> like that yeah, scene. To- I, I, don't, I don't know, man. I guess like when I think about it, the movies that make me laugh the hardest are things like Wet Hot American Summer, The Jerk, and Walk Hard. And those are just like insane and absurd yeah. and broad. And, I Where don't know. Stuff like Quick Change, they're usually – are investing a lot of a, a fairly significant period of time in like oh no Gina Davis and Bill Murray their relationship is disintegrating <laughs> you know yeah that and, stuff isn't and that stuff it's doesn't weird work. how it's weird how it works so well in something like Midnight Run where you actually you know feel a sense of depth with the friendship between De Niro and Charles Grodin of all people. Like that's some that's a movie that should just be a straight out you know uh, weightless action comedy. But I I remember like as a kid like going oh man I want to see you know I want to see them again like when the movie was over like the the relationship built in that movie was so strong. Um, but yeah, that movie definitely suffers from some things that you find annoying and quick change, including the score kind of stuff. I I think the thing about it is, like, when it's done well, it's the best. And I think it's just often not done well, and then those parts are just the parts that your parents like, because your parents, you know, like, that's just, <laughs> oh, that not that sweet? The It's the end of Freaky Friday, and the mom and the daughter are hugging. Right. Um, but on the other hand, like, if you look at... I think the reason maybe modern comedy, at least for me, is more likely to make me laugh is because they don't ever try that. Like, they don't ever try to make you care about the characters. And often that ends up being way more irritating. And that ends up being a problem. Like, that's how you get the fact that there are just, like, 30 shows that are just variations of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where it's just assholes being mean to each other. It's just, like, I feel like every other comedy on Comedy Central or FX could just be called competitive assholes. Because that's yeah. all it, like, you, um, what's the, workaholics, and oh. it's always sunny, and the league, it's always just competitive assholes. Um, and it gets really boring quick, and, you know, when it works well, a, a, a show that doesn't care at all about in you know characters it can work really great like that can be like i'd say i i mean i know some people disagree with me but i think 30 rock is an example of a show that's just a joke machine and i don't give a fuck about any of the characters because they're all just little joke machines walking around at least the jokes are funny yeah no that's what i'm saying that's a great example of that or a show like community where it gets a lot of really good stuff out of the characters relationships you know um The characters feel like real people, and it's not just – they're not just little joke machines. That's good too, but sort of the in-betweeny part where it's like, oh, it's not super funny. They're not saying things, but everyone's really sweet, and you care, and everyone hugs at the end of every episode. That's fucking full house, <laughs> and that's the worst. <laughs> you know, That's the worst of yeah. both worlds, and I'm not saying quick change is full house. 
it's obviously a lot more interesting and has more quirk and personality than that, but that's sort of the vibe I get from a lot of um, those comedies. Uh, I and I, I never I didn't think about that, but that's probably true of a lot of sitcoms from that era too. Yeah, you're probably right. That it was I, just... I wouldn't lump it into like my two dads or anything. No, 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 no. But, no, no. I mean, I'm, not, like, I but think... I'm just saying comedy tended more towards that than the other. Um, yeah, it aired on the side of schmaltz more than it aired on the side of uh, uh, of cyni- being cynical. Yeah, I think it goes through these interesting ebbs and flows, and even something like <laughs> like the, the the parody genre just got completely out of control. Yeah. Um, you know, with the success of Scary Movie, then that led to Date Movie and Epic Movie. And, like, I don't understand how those movies find an audience. I mean, obviously, well, just, if people find them funny, then yeah, but I Well, the way, the way those movies work is they're super fucking cheap, and they're barely 80 minutes long. So basically what happens is... Yeah. They play a lot in theaters. You get a lot of screenings in one day. They're very cheap to make, so they always end up being very profitable. Those movies are never huge successes. No one was the hungover games or whatever the (laughs) the last one was. (laughs) Like, that movie didn't break box office records, but it was probably super profitable because no one famous is in it other than, like, a cameo from Carmen Electra or some shit like that. Um, And it probably costs nothing to make. Uh, and it probably played in theaters like eight times a day um, because the movie's super short, and so they made their money back, and that's kind of how that works. That's how found footage works, too, is, oh, it's super cheap. So right. let's let's take this script that you gave us and uh, let's turn it into a found footage movie. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. All these important scenes, there'd be no reason anyone would hold a camera. And then they go, eh, who gives a fuck? And then they, well, I know the new, the new Bobcat... Goldthwait movie is found foot is found footage, I think, about Bigfoot. Sure, um, and actually, that's that's actually playing near you pretty soon at the Chicago Film Critics Festival. That is actually going to be at the Music Box this year. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. Yeah, so you know, former guests on the show, Colin Suter and Eric Childress, they uh, they helped book a lot of the movies there that are kind of running the show along with. Uh, uh, Brian Tallarico, Peter Subchinsky. A lot of people have been on our show. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to try, fingers crossed, to come out for May 9th because mm-hmm. they're showing They Came Together by David Wayne. And David Wayne is going to be there. And it's supposedly what Wet Hot American Summer did for you know summer camp comedies of the 80s. This does for romantic comedies. Like, they say it's pretty damn funny. Uh, but it's it's kind of a satire slash parody of romantic comedies. But the thing Done about Wet Out American Summer, and I, I think me and you disagree on this a little bit, is I never found it that much about summer camp movies. It was just sort of – it's sort of like Airplane where it's just a setting <laughs> and there's a little bit of parodies thrown here and there. But it's mostly just a background for just wild, crazy jokes. Wild, crazy jokes that work, and... I mean, most of them. I will admit some fall flat, but... uh, It definitely tapped into the kind of movies that came out for a good long stretch. Even something like Poison Ivy, which was 
ridiculous Michael J. Fox camp comedy uh, that came out in 1985, I believe. And there are so many things in that movie that are just utterly ridiculous and implausible and stupid that they kind of, you know, like the in Wet Hot American Summer, when all the kids are going over the the in the raft and like the, they're being taken by the, the, the tide and they might go over a cliff or something at one point. And that happens in poison Ivy and they're totally playing with that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, it's not necessarily like, you know, commenting on summer camps in general, but it's certainly, uh, you know, commenting on movies that came out during that time. Maybe I just uh, haven't seen enough. how ridiculous enough. they were. I haven't, maybe I just haven't seen enough of those films. That, that's why I didn't. Yeah, no, I will movie. agree. It's more, you know, sketch-driven comedy and just them being ridiculous. And I agree about, it's mostly about the setting. But there's certain moments I'm like, oh, they're paying homage or, you know, making fun of this thing that I saw way back when I was young. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just, I'm always excited about what David Wayne is doing. You know what I'm interested to talk about, and I'm probably going to write a little bit of an essay about since I I watched at least th- I think three out of the four, or maybe four out of five, the Body Snatcher movies, nice. which I think are really interesting. Um, you know, just because each one of them came out at a really politically charged time and makes these interesting commentaries about what's going on culturally. And uh, it's weird, like, there's things about them I love and there's things about them that I think make them less effective because they're dated or they come out during a time when these issues aren't quite as relevant. But with, like, the 1978 version, I know they're sort of making fun of, or not making fun, but um, commenting about the death of hippie culture a little bit. Um, and just sort of what happened with Watergate and just the paranoia going on. I honestly picked up on something, and it's mainly because of, like, my own recent research about, like, food. Just, like, you know, all the chemicals going on and GMOs and all this stuff. And a lot of that has to do with my roommate sort of talking to me and educating me about, like, oh, don't buy this, it's got this in it. But weirdly enough, there are moments in the 78 version including like like a like a speech by a character saying we eat all this crap and we don't even realize it but it's interesting choice that they make Donald Sutherland a food inspector who finds like you know rat turds at a you know in a soup at a restaurant at the beginning um it's it's just weird like there's little hints throughout that movie i know it's not his main thesis but i think they're sort of commenting a little bit about like just chemicals in our food and how they become like these, you know, in, infestations and germs and stuff. Um, so the '78 version, like I, I'm obviously probably reading into that based on what I've learned recently. Like I don't think that's the you know the, the main thrust of the movie in terms of I think it's more politically driven. Um, and then obviously there was the '93 version, I believe, by Abel Ferrara. And he decided to have it take place at a military camp after, like, the Gulf War was taking place and stuff. 
And Gulf um, War syndrome? Is that sort of Yeah, mm-hmm, pretty much. And then unfortunately, like, I really like that version for the most part. It's 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 like eighty minutes long though, and it, you don't really get as invested in the in the character because it's mainly told from the point of view of a you know angst ridden teenage girl who just like doesn't understand why her parents are being so weird. And um, I mean, you have my attention, <laughs> but I but I also realize okay, you know, he's doing the commentary on you know the military mentality. And how, you know, conformity is kind of like this all-consuming thing within that um, institution. So, I mean, that's interesting. But I don't know what happened with the most recent take with the Nicole Kidman version. Like there's, the, the invasion. Yeah. There's this, like, long sort of uh, history with it. You know, like it went through rewrites. The Wachowskis were involved. The director of V for Vendetta was involved. Uh, like, it just got hacked to bits by the studio and it's so weirdly edited um i but at the same time you know like the commentary going on in that film obviously really appeals to me to where i'm disappointed the movie's not better because she plays uh, a psychiatrist in this one and there's a lot of people commenting like oh you give drugs to make people a certain way and blah 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 and you know there's commentary about the pharmaceutical industry going on really in that one yeah. i always assumed that one was about terrorism just because i guess i assumed all <laughs> post 9-11 all post 9-11 for like that six you know year period or whatever well it's, <laughs> I, it's, I guess it's, i assumed all those movies are about terrorism but yeah it's weird though because i even noticed you know me being like so in tune with kind of like pharmaceuticals in general and like sure. done my own personal research at the beginning i forget what medication i think she even says because she's trying to find medications to stay awake so she like breaks into a drugstore and starts listing off okay this one this one this one and then all of a sudden she goes oh good clonazepam that'll keep me awake I'm like no it won't that's like that's like a form of xanax that's totally wrong why didn't the screenwriters uh, do their research? Why why would they throw that medication in there to help keep her stay awake? Yeah. So I don't know. Like that was just one of those specific things that I found annoying. Sure. But I like the idea of making, you know, the protagonist a psychiatrist who thinks like, Oh, I'm I'm doing all this good for people. I'm help making people happy. And then like the aliens are coming to like, you know, sort of do a variation on that and being like, We know what's better for people. So, I mean, there's a really good version of that movie buried in a really horribly executed executed version. Yeah, unfortunately, just, you know, like with the Romero films, which is the first thing I thought of when you were talking about this with the invasion of the body snatchers. It's sure. Just, with those films, it's they were all by the same director and most of them were independent. So it, you know that you're getting one person's vision as they go through different decades and stuff like that. Whereas, um, yeah, with with something like in property like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it is unfortunate that you could have an interesting take that just gets hacked to bits by a studio that's like, oh no, this is too slow, we need to have an action scene yeah. here, or oh, we gotta have the romantic subplot, or, you know, typical Hollywood bullshit. Yeah, and I imagine that's, that happened to some degree, because it just... The 93 version feels way too short and underdeveloped. So I don't know. 
I can't remember specifically if Abel Ferrara went through... I'm assuming he got. He must have gone through a studio, but he wasn't the type to ever do that. Um, and of course, you know... Invasion of the Body Snatchers is owned by a studio, or if that is a property. I would yeah. imagine, just because the original film is so iconic, that whatever film made that... Whatever studio made that film, they would hold on to the rights to that. Um, mm-hmm. So I bet yeah, it was it's... based on a novel, right? Think, but whoever right? owns the movie rights to that novel would own the new movie rights to that novel, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's interesting no, you th- say that. Um, I watched the remake of Night of the Living Dead recently. I haven't um, seen that since like maybe ninety two, <laughs> so I can't is, comment. As on far it, as but... as far as horror movie goes, it's uh, it's worth seeing, but it's not um, particularly great. That's what um, I thought. It's one of those things where there's a few things that are good about it. There's not a lot of things that are bad about it. Uh, and it <laughs> doesn't overstay its welcome. And if you are a horror fan, unfortunately, that often is enough for you. <laughs> um, sure. But, uh, but I was interested in the fact that, you know, speaking of the rights, Night of the Living Dead is public domain. So there are actually uh, several remakes. Um, so I actually uh, am now – I'm interested in – Seeing like the 30th anniversary version, which is apparently the worst thing ever. Um, have you heard about this one? No. Where the co the co writer, not Romero, but the other guy, um, in like 2001 or two or something like that. I can't remember the exact date. But he shot new footage for uh, for Night of the Living Dead and then re released it as like the 30th anniversary special edition. Um, and apparently it just adds a lot of really shitty backstory and the footage doesn't match at all because it was shot on modern film, you know, like modern video cameras that are just black and white. And then suddenly at one point it switches to the black and white, you know, film cameras huh. from the 60s and it has a different score and apparently it's just the worst thing. So there's that. There's Night of the Living Dead reanimation, which is a fan Jeez. remake where – Tons of different artists each remade a small portion of Night of the Living Dead. And they, it's all edited together. So there are some that it's like I, – I suppose it's like clay animated. Some is hand-drawn. Some is refilmed. Uh, I think I saw something like that like um, online. They A bunch of fans did something like that for Star Wars and New Hope. But this one was released on DVD because, again – uh, Night of the Living Dead being public domain, you can do whatever the fuck you want to it. Um, so I I want to see that. I want to see Night of the Living Dead uh, Resurrection or something, which I think is a prequel. <laughs> There's Night of the Living Dead 3D, which is a direct-to-video remake with um, – what's his face? Uh, Captain Spaulding from Devil's Reject. Sid Haig. Oh, yeah. And apparently that's one of the worst movies ever. Um, I think it's interesting. I it would be interesting to see all those versions, even though apparently they're all horrible, other than the original and the Tom Savini remake, which is all right. Yeah, that's what I thought when I first saw it. I can't believe there's this many Night of the Living Dead's, and I well, had no idea. It's public domain, and it's a well-known name. I'm surprised there aren't more, to be honest. It's <laughs> like uh, when Django, that uh, Italian, uh, that, that spaghetti western. When that was mm-hmm. big, a million movies came out of Italy that were claiming to be sequels, and they were basically 
just ripping off the character of Django. Most of them didn't have the actor Franco Nero in it. Most of them had nothing to do with anything, but they would just be called Django because that was a popular thing. Um, when The yeah. Exorcist came out, there was a lot of things that were trying to rip off The Exorcist. I think there's a ton of movies that are were retitled like Last House on the Left 2 <laughs> you know, that, that were not yeah. actually have anything to do with Last House on the Left. So it honestly surprises me there aren't more. <sighs> Um, especially... that, that's, that actually reminds me, though, of when House 3 became the horror show for no reason. Like, I just, even back then when I was younger, I was like, what were they... First of all, when you go to the video store, there's House, House 2, oh, and then House 4. Yeah. Like, what what the hell? Like, where did House 3 go? And then apparently it was became the horror show, but it had nothing to do with the house mythology at all. Well, that's why do happened. I care? There was there was <laughs> Troll, which is about like fantasy creatures in this apartment complex. Um, and then Troll Two had nothing to do with the first Troll. It was just calling itself Troll Two. Um, <sighs> and and then there was a movie where it was like radioactive giant worm tentacle things. Um, and <sighs> in some countries, apparently, that was called Troll Three. Even though it was just worms, it wasn't. What is going on? It's so confusing. Honestly, I don't know why Night of the Living Dead isn't remade every year. Hmm. Like, why not? If if you're going to make a shitty zombie movie, why not call it Night of the Living Dead colon something and get people... I mean, I guess all your... I guess you could be afraid of pissing off horror fans, but... I mean, if you're just sort of cranking out shitty zombie movies to begin with, you might as well make more money by calling it Night of the Living Dead and then <laughs> getting it on that IMDb Connections page where it says Night of the Living Dead followed by or like Patrick, remade I, as. I think you found your calling. I think you found your purpose. To remake Night of the Living Dead over and over and over again? As a found footage movie. Oh, fuck! Diary of the Dead! Yeah, 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 fuck that bitch if I wanted that. And a dog in the street like a. Everyone should see Sheep Thrills. I was so delighted. With a crowd, with a crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can, then, you know, it's. I don't know how many more theatrical screenings it's actually going to have, but. Well, invite, that's true. Invite people over and right. watch it on demand. Because it begins to, and I'm not going to, I don't want to give anything away about Cheap Thrills because I went in knowing nothing at all, um, not knowing at all where it was going to go. And it was a total delight. Um, yeah. But Awesome final shot. But it definitely is a film where the crowd will get invested the way a crowd might get invested in like a sporting event um, where people <laughs> will be rooting yeah. for people. And it's, and it's fucking amazing. Yeah, the final the final shot is fantastic as well. So Cheap Thrills is great. I actually got the um, I I talked to the director because he was at he did a Q and A screening at the Music Box. Oh, nice. Um, apparently, that movie went through a ton of different drafts, and originally, like the the one character who is sort of um, behind everything happening, apparently he was originally more like Jigsaw. <laughs> Oh, God. Like, he was this old man who had these really long monologues about, uh, like, the economy and stuff like that. Oh, no. And luckily, 
the movie as it exists now is a really really minimizes all of the that that kind of stuff and it it's just really great um but i got the uh i don't know i'm gonna see if i can try to get that guy on for an interview uh oh that'd be fantastic we used to write we used to write for the same site not the same time but i wrote for uh creature corner which was chud chud.com's horror sort of site and uh he wrote for it as well so isn't that interesting well, that's a good segue to wrap things up because sure. the next bonus episode um, after this, it's going to be a lot shorter, obviously, but I'm doing an interview with the director of a documentary called In So Many Words, which is very hard to find. I don't know if you're going to be able to see it soon. I'm going to talk to her a little bit to figure out what her plans for distribution for it will be, but it is a documentary about a woman who suffered with mental illness and... Um, how she overcame it, how she managed her symptoms. And it's pretty remarkable because when I saw the trailer, I was like, I don't know. And it turned out to be something really, really unique in terms of how it's told. Uh, I'll, I'll go more into detail for that episode and sort of give like my overall feelings. I, I definitely had a very personal response to, because of what the character goes through. So I'm not sure if everybody's going to find it as powerful as I did. But I'm really excited to talk to, to um, you know, a filmmaker who's... She's actually, she actually won an Emmy for editing uh, an HBO documentary called The Loving Ones, I want to say. Or The Loving? I, I have to look that up. But anyway, it's going to be a really cool uh, discussion because she was really... Um, an excellent uh, storyteller during the Q and a. So it'll be cool. Uh, trust me. I mean, a lot of people may not be like, Oh, another documentary about mental illness. Meh. It's actually really good. Cause I was surprised and you know, me obviously having investment in the subject matter sure helps, but the way it was told was quite interesting. So anyway, that'll be coming up cool. along with finally, uh, an official new episode Probably we'll be recording next Thursday, I hope. Yeah. On Roman Polanski! Thank you, Jim. That's really exciting. Yeah. My heart started to race just then. It was almost like I was watching a Roman Polanski thriller. <laughs> Bill Brodsky! Or whatever. That oh, was. that was an SNL reference? Yeah. Damn. I thought kind it was dated. just... Don't you hate that when you hear it, when you like think a joke is really funny because you think it's a non sequitur, and then you <laughs> learn that it's a reference to something and it's not as funny? Yeah. Speaking of those really shitty uh, parody movies, the one time I, I actually watched the movie Meet the Spartans, which was the three hundred sort of version oh, of that. I'm sorry. And yeah, yeah, no, me too. And the one part of the film I laughed was during the part where the guy. Uh, from Persia or whatever, the messenger that ends up getting kicked into the pit. Um, while he's sort of gi- delivering a spiel, they're walking along and they just start holding hands and swinging their hands together. <laughs> it was really funny. And then I realized it was like a gay joke because they, they made a bunch of Sparta Spartan gay jokes. But like for the, for the moment I thought it was just like a non sequitur kind of thing. Um, and I laughed really hard, and then I found out it was a gay joke, and I wanted to take the laugh back. I was really sad. 
Well, one upside to moving to Grand Rapids recently, I when I walked over to the liquor store, the uh, clerk there and I started talking about found footage movies. Oh, really? Is, yeah, it was really unexpected. I know I, he he knows I'm a fan of horror movies because says I wore a Cronenberg shirt once, but then he started talking about like because I mentioned Afflicted and all that stuff. He's like, you know what I really liked was. Uh, that guy who did Hobo with a Shotgun and his uh, his his uh, story or his segment in VHS 2. And I was like, oh yeah, the alien abduction slumber party. <laughs> so it's just cool to have like a conversation randomly with somebody about um, found footage movies as well. Which is like kind of neat. Kinda Only in Michigan. Thing. Only yeah. in Michigan. Could that happen? I know, right? It could have happened. Could have happened in Chicago. You could have tried harder. Let's talk about found footage movies with your local liquor store owners. Sure, yeah. they're they're probably Bulgarian and <laughs> they won't know what you're talking about in in Chicago. But that doesn't mean that you can't try. I know that's fine. I just miss you, Jim. I miss me too. Yeah, and I miss you more. Good. Yeah, yeah. It's tough. It's definitely tough knowing that. Like, oh fuck. Patrick's going to see Under the Skin tonight. I sure am. Uh, and eat poutine. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm probably just going to eat poo and watch uh, The Bachelor again. If I could live my life half as worthlessly as you, I'm convinced that I'd wind up burning too. here live at the waterfront village with my friend the zombie jonathan you're looking good jonathan just got an awesome face paint job what do you think i like turtles all right you're great zombie and good times here at the waterfront village open for the next 11 days i love turtles i love turtles podcat podcat podcat